Hey, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. I have an envelope with money on, uh, in it. Is this for me? Yeah, yeah. It says uh, Paul and Sade on it. And it looks like there's $40 in there. I, I'm serious. There is money on the pulpit with your name on it. I'll keep it. I'll just take it. Hey, someone put this in the offer. Put that in the offering box, all right? All right. Glad we got it squared away there. Is there any other money laying around to deal with? Um, all right, Exodus 32. Let's, jump, let's just jump right into the reading of his word. Follow along as I read. When the, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Israel saw, saw this, he built an altar before it. I'm sorry, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I might consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all the land that I have promised will, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is war in the camp. But he said, 
It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that he had made and burned it with fire and ground it to to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Father, we come into your word. This is, this is difficult. This is atrocious. This is, this is hard for us to hear. Largely, God, because we see ourselves in it. God, this is Your inerrant Word given to us to build us up, to strengthen us, to reprove us, to correct us. I ask that You would do all of these things through the work of Your Holy Spirit today. It's in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. Well, today is Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. My Valentine is in Chicago. It's much colder there, if you can believe it. I thought we should start with a love story from the Scriptures, a picture of a marriage. It's one that we talk about quite a bit here because it's so important. It's not the picture-perfect marriage by any means. You know which one I'm talking about? Well, no, they have a picture-perfect marriage. Yeah. It's It's the marriage of... Hosea and Gomer. You know the story. We reference it often. It's, it so frames kind of who we are. Hosea marries this woman named Gomer. She's a prostitute. By God's direction, they have this wedding. Gomer gives Hosea his first child. Seems to be his. Second child, not so much. Third child comes along. Hosea names this child Not mine. How would you like to have that name? Things are very bad. 
She's wandering the streets. She ends up in the hands of a pimp. Chapter 3 of Hosea, God directs this man to go back. God says, love your wife again. Buy her back from slavery. Because I want to show through you my love for my people. Whoa! What does this say about us? Alright, so there's another marriage here. Not the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, but the marriage in which that pictures. That is the marriage of God and Israel. So here we see, if you remember the context, God has delivered His people from slavery. God then, on Mount Sinai, gave a covenant, a.k.a. God married His people. He came into this union with His people. Now immediately what happens is His people build a golden calf and rebel against their newlywed, God Himself. And that points us to yet another picture of marriage. That's the marriage of Christ and the church. We are not the bride that got ourselves cleaned up for the husband. But Christ is the husband who cleaned us up and is cleaning us up for himself. Oh, how quickly we build our golden calves and rebel. Oh, how quickly we turn like Gomer away from Hosea. It's not the picture-perfect marriage for Valentine's Day. You'll never find a Valentine's card that says, Hey, baby, can I be your Hosea? Or you are my Gomer. No. No. But it's a marriage that frames our relationship with God. When I was a kid, I had a rabbit. We named the rabbit Harvey. And then we renamed the rabbit Houdini. Because we found out that Harvey could get out of any cage that we put him in. We would walk out into our backyard and there he was. Nibbling away in the grass outside of his cage. We built a bigger cage. Finally, we, 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 we built Fort Knox. Have you ever heard of it? We put Harvey in there. There's no way he's going to get out of this place. And one day, Harvey was gone. He'd escaped Fort Knox. He had nibbled in our grass for a while. Evidently, the, the grass in the neighbor's yard looked greener, and he moved that direction. Nibbled over there. Nibbled to the next yard. Nibbled in the next Greener grass in the next, kept nibbling away. Three months later, our neighbor found Harvey on the other side of our neighborhood, nibbling in somebody's grass. Now, how is it that we wander from Jesus? How is it that we, we get lost? Well, we, we simply see some grass that looks greener, and we wander over into that yard and we begin to nibble away. And then we find some other grass that looks greener than what Jesus has to offer and we nibble in that grass. And before we know it, we're lost. And this is serious. Hebrews chapter 6 says, if you nibble your way out of here, all right? That's not what it says. That's my paraphrase. There is no hope for you. There's no hope for you outside of this one hope of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Someone says, well, I prayed a prayer. I know I'm saved. I can't lose my salvation. True. Perseverance of the saints. True. We believe that. But it's perseverance of the saints. It's remaining with the faith. It's not playing games and wandering into other yards and believing that we're okay. We will find ourselves lost. We will not retain the faith. And there are some who have wandered from among us. This is serious business. I want to talk to you today on this theme, prone to wander. Now, up until this point in the story of Israel, in the story of their redemption out of slavery, sin hasn't been much of a factor. So even when going back to the, uh, the, the Passover, if you remember that, the blood on the doorposts, the reason for the blood wasn't because Israel was a sinner. At least that's not what it said. The, this, the sin of Israel hasn't really been part of the story. As a matter of fact, even when they gave the law on, on Mount Sinai, there's this sense in which Israel says, yeah, we'll do this. We'll follow all things that you have commanded. And if you were reading through Exodus for the first time and you didn't know the end, you might just as well think that Israel remains in obedience and holiness in front of God. But now chapter 32 comes. Right in the middle of the tabernacle business. The author writes chapter 32 and it is disastrous. Sin, the personal sin of Israel, all of a sudden comes to the forefront. Israel quickly turns from the redeemed people to, let's just look at it. In verses 7-14, through 14, we see God's own alert as He comes to Moses. In verse 8, He, he says, look, look, look how they have turned aside so quickly. You see that word quickly right there? Oh, how quickly you have turned. They have turned aside. In verse 9, God calls them a stiff-necked people. Verse 19, Moses himself walks down to check everything out and we, we see his own response of, of anger. And Moses, as he sees what's going on, he breaks the tablets on the ground that God had just given them. He then takes this golden calf that was built with the gold that was to be used for God and, and he grinds it, or he first burns it, and then he grinds it all down into dust and then he mixes that with water and he gives it to the people and he says, drink it. And they drink the remains of this calf. Not only that, but then going on in verse 26, we see what seems to be severe to some of us. We see capital punishment as the result of this rebellion. Verse 26, the, the word goes out, Who is on the Lord's side? The sons of Levi come. And Moses instructs them that you are ordained by God for this activity. You are going to go be the hand of God and kill 3,000. 3,000 were slain that day. Capital punishment for this sin. Why was it so bad? Why did this re require capital punishment? Well, let's just meditate for a moment on how bad this actually was. First, this is an immediate rebellion against God. Remember, they just saw the glory 
of God on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? The flashes of lightning, they're in horror, they're in awe, they're in fear. There's no way in which they would ever dream of so quickly rebelling against God, yet immediately they cannot, as soon as the law is given, keep it. Immediate rebellion. This is an idolatrous rebellion. What do they do? They build a calf as a representation of the plural gods. They used the gold that was to be used for the worship of God in the construction of the tabernacle to build this idol. This is a sexual rebellion. Right there in verse 6, they rose to play. Some Hebrew scholars point out that there is a sexual uh, 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 connection there. Revelry is the way that the NIV translates it. Verse 25, God says they have broken loose, which is a word that indicates that they have freed themselves from any moral restraints. We don't know the details of what was going on, but we know that it was gross immorality. This was a pagan rebellion. What is that sound they hear as Joshua and Moses are walking down the mountain? Is it shouts of war? Is it the cries of defeat? No, he says it's singing. Well, what does that mean? It's singing. Why is that so bad? Singing's not bad. Well, in this context, it is. That word singing is a word that that also indicates this concept of bowing oneself down. It's later used for the singing that happens in the temple, which means Moses knows that they've already constructed, they've already turned themselves against God, and he hears singing. This is pagan worship. It is complete rebellion. Complete rebellion against the Ten Commandments that Moses just received on the mountain. Let's just skim it really quickly. Verse 1, he says, these are your gods. These are your gods. That's, that's breaking the first commandment. Have no other god before thee. They build a golden calf. That's breaking the second commandment. They have a feast to the Lord. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, breaking the third commandment. There's immorality, breaking the seventh commandment. They take the gold that belongs to the Lord and they use it for their own purposes. That's stealing. That's breaking the eighth commandment. After this golden calf is constructed, they say, this is your God. They're lying about who God is. That's breaking the ninth commandment. They want something they cannot have. That's coveting. That's breaking the tenth commandment commandment. Break one commandment. We break them all. This is complete rebellion against the law-giving God of holiness. Now, knowing something about your own family history will help you kind of know who you are. One thing I like to do personally is explore my own family history. And those of you that have have been to my house, see some old pictures that I hang And it remembers kind of where I came from and my own roots. Knowing our American history will help us today know some of the challenges, understand some of the challenges that we have. But now let's go back a couple thousand years. And let's ask this question. What in the world does a... uh, the, the history of this nomadic people 
in the wilderness have to do with us today? What does this festival that took place thousands of years ago among these nomads in a Middle Eastern wilderness have to do with us today? The answer is this. It has everything to do with us today. This isn't just some story that's locked away in the history books that we can kind of read about and and find interest in, but this is something that frames our own existence. The Holy Spirit, through His Word, tells us this has everything to do with us today. Oh, how quickly we build our golden calves. In the New Covenant, in this era, 1 Corinthians 10.7 says, Do not be worshipers as they were who sat and ate and drank the sacrifices offered to the golden calf and then rose to play. Don't keep repeating what they did. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, a direct quote from this passage. Paul says, I am astonished that you so quickly turn away. I am astonished that we so quickly turn away. The rapper turned pastor Shai Lin put it this way in his song, The Jealous One. He said, you say I don't worship a golden calf. Well, for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash. I think he's right. You know, the Bible is the most realistic book in all of the world. And it tells us more about ourselves than we often realize. It shows us something about the wandering of our own hearts. And I'm telling you, friends, if we wander from the one hope that is communicated in here, there is no other hope for us. So let's just spend the rest of our time asking this question. How can we guard ourselves from wandering? From nibbling away at other fields that look greener than the field that God has put us in? How can we keep ourselves from wandering from our one hope? The way I want to approach that question is in this way. I want to examine the heart problems that Israel had here. What were their core problems that led them to be so quick to build a golden calf and rebel against God? Their first problem is this. We see it in verse 23. Israel was ungrateful. They're ungrateful. Friday I walked into my house and my son Haddon pulled a lollipop out of his mouth and he said, I love Eden. Good. And then he said, she gave me this. What a wonderful response to receiving a lollipop. Uh, that's, that's called gratefulness. Someone does something nice for us and it, it's not the reason we love them, but it certainly conjures up these feelings of love and gratitude that we have for that person. Well, this is, this is what's lacking here with Israel. God has already done so much for the people of Israel. And the moment that Moses walks away and he's on the mountain for six, mo- uh, six weeks, which is a, it's a long time, but it's not that long, right? The moment there's this pause, the moment the wilderness around them is felt, they lose all gratefulness. 
We see it in their language. Look at verse 1. They say, up. Make us gods. This, this sort of demanding kind of language. Make us gods, they say, who will go before us, which is this idea of protection going before us into battle. As if, keep in mind, as if God has not gone before them every step of the way so far. As if God did not part the waters for them. As if God did not appear to them as a, uh, a, a pillar during, of, of a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And now the moment that they feel the absence of God's presence, they forget, they are ungrateful, and they are demanding new gods. This Moses... Who brought us out? This, this dehumanizing language that they use to speak of their leader. Disrespectful, ungrateful. Verse 23, it's, it's re, uh, reiterated. The man, they call him. The man Moses. Who brought us out. They're blaming Moses for the reason that they're no longer in Egypt. You pick up on that? Blaming Moses for the reason that they're no longer in slavery, as if that was better. Oh, they have now a father, but they want Pharaoh. As soon as times get tough, their ungratefulness for all that God is and all that God has done for them is seen. Since when is the sunrise not enough? Since when is the fact that God has showered us with so many blessings not enough? He's given us food. Most of us, probably all of us in this room, He's given us at least a warm place to sleep last night. Since when is the common grace of God not enough? But let's move on. Since, since when is the forgiveness of your sins not enough? Since when is the, the giving of the Holy Spirit to wake you up from the dead not enough. Since when is the eternal redemption of your soul and body one day forever with the Lord? Since when is that not enough? You see, we get so focused on the now. We get so focused on what's currently happening in our midst and how we feel about it, focusing on not what we have, but what we lack. We look around and we say, I lack this and I lack that and I lack this thing over here. Therefore, I am ungrateful. God has not done enough for me. Let's turn this for just a moment. How might we resist the drift? How might we resist this kind of being prone to so quickly build a golden calf. Well, we could say the opposite of being ungrateful is what? To be grateful. We could say to be ever thankful. Even when you feel the desert. Even when you feel the wilderness. Even when you feel the lack. Even when you feel the sense that God's experiential presence is not with you in the moment. In that time, we are to be ever thankful for who God is and what God has done. Society is not impressed with us when we 
are making six digits and working a good job, and we've got plenty of money, and we've got a nice house, family's healthy, and we say, you know, I'm so thankful for God. Society looks at that and they say, of course you are, you scoundrel. You have everything. You have no need, right? Of course you're thankful. No, society is impressed when we are in the wilderness. When Moses has been up on the mountain for six weeks and we're wondering if he's ever going to come back. When we're feeling the lack when we're feeling the pain, when we're feeling the burn, and in that moment we say, God, I am so grateful for all that You are and for all that You have done in my life. The forgiveness of sins is enough. The redemption of the body and soul is enough. God's Spirit, the, the Christ on the cross, is enough. That's impressive. Lemuel Haynes, when he was on his deathbed, he said this. He wrote this to his kids. He said, My situation is not very encouraging. I am in the hands of God, reconciled to His will. It is impossible to determine what will be the issue of the disease. I hope I can say, The Lord reigns. Blessed be His name. Oh, remember your Creator. Let not the fashions of the world divert your minds from eternity. On his deathbed, grateful. Grateful. The second problem that Israel had is that they were unbelieving. Not only were they ungrateful, they were unbelieving. We also see this in verse 1 and in verse 23. You were never there. That's like the worst phrase that a parent could hear, right? Some of you might say that about your own parents, and unfortunately it's true. I would say every one of us, if God were to give you kids, if you have kids, every one of us would say, I hope I never hear those words uttered out of my kid's mouth. You were never there for me. He told me he would be at my birthday party. He never showed up. He told me he would come to the game. He never came. He told me that he would come to my graduation. He never showed up. You were never there. And then what we do is we imagine that God is like that absent father. As soon as we experience the lack, you were never there. You're not coming back. I don't believe anymore. Verse 1, this is what they do. Moses is up on the mountain. They say, we don't know what happened to this man. I don't know if he's even coming back. He's been up there for six weeks. He might be dead. And they abandon the promises of God. They no longer trust and believe God. Verse 23, they say then, make us gods. God must have brought us out here to die. He's abandoned us, so get up, Aaron, and make us gods. Again, to use that same analogy, society is not impressed. When you've got everything together, everything is going well, and you say, oh, I believe in God. Society says, of course you do. 
No, society is impressed when you lose your job. When someone breaks into your car and steals everything. When your kids get sick. When your husband leaves you. You say, I'm still trusting the promises of God. I'm feeling the lack right now, but God has not abandoned me, and I still believe. That's impressive. The scoffers will always come. We see this in the Psalms. The scoffers will always say, where is your God? Look at your life. Look at what's going on in your life. Where is your God? What is your God doing for you? Friends, the droughts and the doubts will come. Do you have a foundation that is firm? Do you have a foundation that will last you through these wilderness moments? Do you know the promises of God? Are you trusting and believing in God's Word? This is why relationships with each other are so vastly important. This is why we can't just simply come and do church once a week and then go about our separate ways and listen to the voices of the world all around us without hearing one another. The hands and feet of Jesus remind us of who God is, of His promises, of His Word, that God is true, that God is faithful. That's why this Sunday, Lord's Day worship experience is so important so we can once again be under the Word, so we can be reminded of the Word, so we can be reminded that God is still on the mountain, that Jesus in the midst of your suffering is still on the throne, and that Moses is coming back down the mountain. Christ is coming again. Yes, we are in this wilderness moment, but He is coming again. Where is our God? Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And Christ is coming again. Just as as an example of this, to pull a page from the black church history books, why is it that the faith of the African American church was passed on from generation to generation to generation from the days of slavery. Why is that? Now, the anti-Christian would tell you it's because the white man stuffed the faith down the throats of the slaves, forced them to believe it. That's why black people are Christians, right? No, wrong. Absolutely not. A faith that is stuffed down someone's throat is not passed on from generation to generation. Only a faith that is genuine, only a faith that is, that is experienced and believed and lived out is a faith that is not only passed on from generation to generation, but blossoms and grows and impacts history and changes the very landscape of this society. Why is it? It's because the faith of African Americans was forged in suffering through times of lack. And that is when the faith is shown to be genuine and legit and real. And that is a faith that is passed on from generation to generation. Ever believing. Lastly, the third problem with Israel is that they were unconcerned. What I mean by that is this. They were definitely concerned about what people thought. They were unconcerned about what God thought. Or let me pinpoint 
specifically who I'm talking about. Aaron, all right, the high priest, the brother-in-law of Moses, famous Aaron, was unconcerned about what God thought and was concerned about what people thought. Aaron, in this moment, what was his problem? Aaron became a people pleaser. Verse 1, they come to him and, and, and we got, like, let's give Aaron a break for just a moment. Let's put ourselves in his shoes. The way that it, that it explains how they, they came to Aaron, it says, it says they gathered themselves together to Aaron. That gathered themselves is a word in the Hebrew that indicates there's a hostility behind it. They're coming with this hostile approach to Aaron and they are saying, get us new gods. And so Aaron then, he, he does it and he, he immediately says, all right, give me the gold that we brought out of Egypt. Give me that gold. And, and then Aaron puts it in and he melts it. And, he, and Aaron himself fashions a golden calf. And he's like, okay, maybe this will please them, right? That's what they wanted. And then Aaron sees that they're about to have a festival to it. Now, now what does Aaron do? Well, in verse 5, Aaron twists his own understanding of God, and he says, all right, this will be a feast to the Lord. We're going to kind of redeem this golden calf. This is a feast to the Lord. This is all about the God who brought us out of slavery. Verse 22, when Aaron is finally approached on this, and Moses says, how could you have let them do this? My brother-in-law, the high priest. Aaron says, you know these people? They're crazy. You know these people. And then Aaron goes on with this excuse. He says in verse 22, he says, look, I just put the gold in and then out comes this calf. I didn't even know that a calf would come out. Are you kidding me? When I was growing up, my, there was a story that was often told to me about my uncle who, who pushed my aunt down the stairs. And when he was asked about it, he said, I just pushed her down the first step and she fell the rest. Don't give me those excuses. Oh, you just put the gold in and a calf came out? Don't give me that. Excuses. Why? He's a people pleaser. He's trying to please people. He's, he's, he's concerned about what people think, not concerned about what God thinks. He's afraid of the people that run the neighborhood. He's not afraid of the Lord. He's afraid of those who offer scrutiny, those who want to, want, want to criticize him as opposed to being afraid of the Lord. Focused on people instead of focused on God. Why did Adam fall? It's because Adam was focused on people. Why did Christ succeed? Let's continue this. It's because Christ, in the moment of decision, sought to please only God and not the thousands of voices all around Him. How do we fight this drift? The answer is to be ever courageous. To be ever courageous. It is time to stand out. To rebel against society. And friends, let me be clear. We may, in this world, temporarily lose. You may not. But you may temporarily lose money, opportunity, if you follow Christ. But we need to be ever 
courageous in this world that we live in. Sex out of marriage, drugs, running the streets, taking advantage of the poor, gossiping about others. Everybody's doing that stuff. Everybody's doing that. I love Lecrae. He talks about being a rebel. He says, you want to be a rebel? In Lecrae's words, he says, the only rebellion left is to read your Bible. Rebel against society. Stop doing what everybody's doing and actually have some courage and step up. We've got to change this entire narrative of fear. What is the worst that people can do to you? What is the worst thing that can happen to you? Honestly, thoughts? They can, they can hurt you. They can talk bad about you. They can, they can turn their backs on you. They can torture you. And they can kill you. And we serve a God who raises the dead. So whom do I fear? Show me the person that I should fear when I have a God that raises the dead. Friends, let's be ever courageous and not concerned about what people can do to us. How quickly we build golden calves. John Stott said it's more common to hear people clapping in triumph in church than it is to see people blush over their sin in church. We rebel a thousand different ways every week. Constantly wandering from the God that we love. So how can we change? Well, we could say that we should just reverse it all. To be ever thankful and and ever believing and ever courageous. But here's our problem. If we're going to be honest about it, the desert times come and we are prone to wander and over and over we find ourselves nibbling in someone else's lawn. We find ourselves wandering from Christ. And here we read about the capital punishment that took place. And it offends us because we see ourselves there. What is our hope? Our hope is not in the fact that we are ever thankful, ever believing, and ever courageous. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus is and was ever thankful, ever believing, and ever courageous. The desert times will come. We are prone to wander. Our hope is in Christ alone. Shailin goes on. He says atrocious paths. We still don't know the half of how these things provoke His holy wrath. So we stand in awe and wonder how come God took His jealous anger out on His Son so all those who trust Him can see like we're supposed to see and be forgiven of our spiritual adultery. This text is not primarily for us about sin. This text is about the forgiveness of sins. 
This text is about the fact that we, a bunch of wanderers, are allowed to live, are given life, because Christ died in our place. To the critics, John Stott goes on and he says, how can anyone say then that, that, that Christianity is about sin? No. It's about the forgiveness of sins. How quickly we build golden calves. How quickly we wander. And the scoffers come and we hear their voice, where is your God? What is our resolve? It is this, to know and hear and remember His Word. We have His Word. We have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We have the new covenant of Jesus Christ. We have the resurrected Christ. We have all of the promises of God. And because of that, that is the, modus, the, the greatest motivator for us to be ever grateful and ever believing and ever courageous in a world that despises our Savior. And so for us, we may stand on that firm foundation. And we may be able to say with one another, the golden calves just don't do it for us anymore. Because we have Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving us this difficult yet enlightening chapter. We ask that as we go from here, that we stand only on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That we would not waver. And that You would continue to redeem wanderers. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.